Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin by mentioning what was predicted on yesterday's program that the Murdochs would settle with Dominion and that just happened with Fox News agreeing to pay Dominion $787.5 million. Also today, the House Republican Caucus met behind closed doors where Speaker McCarthy tried to wrangle the 218 votes needed to pass his budget proposal that would use the debt ceiling as leverage to exact cuts in Medicaid and food stamps. But it appears there was no agreement, particularly from the Freedom Caucus, who want to cut IRS enforcement, which contradicts the need to raise revenues to pay down the debt that Republicans claim is their top priority. Joining us is Karen Dolan, the Project Director of the Poverty and Race Project at the Institute for Policy Studies, whose work focuses on anti-poverty issues, local democracy and empowerment. She previously coordinated the Economic Hardship Reporting Project with the late New York Times bestselling author Barbara Ehrenreich and is the author of The Poor Get Prison, The Alarming Spread of the Criminalization of Poverty. And she has an article at The Hill President Biden, don't negotiate with fiscal terrorists. Then we'll look into the role of a recent member of the U.S. Navy, Sarah Bills, who runs a pro-Putin social media site, Don Bastavushka, that was the source of disseminating to Russia and beyond some of the secrets leaked much earlier by the 21-year-old National Guard airman who was arrested on Friday. Apparently, this 37-year-old former NCO doctored the stolen documents to make Ukrainian casualties high and Russian casualties low in an April 5th post that was picked up by Tucker Carlson, who broadcast her lies on Fox News on April the 13th. Joining us to discuss the peculiar pathology of American leftists who support the right-wing fascist Vladimir Putin is Joseph Bodner, a research analyst with the Alliance for Securing Democracy and the, at the German Marshall Fund, where he is part of their information manipulation team and focuses on Russian propaganda and disinformation. He previously worked with the Atlantic Council's Global Strategy Initiative and with the State Department's Global Engagement Center to identify trends in foreign disinformation targeting the 2020 U.S. election. Then finally, we'll speak with Stephen Simon, who served on the National Security Council staff as a senior director for Middle Eastern and North African Affairs from 2011 to 2012. He also worked on the NSC staff from 1994 to 1999 on counterterrorism and Middle East security policy. These assignments followed a 15-year career at the United States Department of State. Between government assignments, he was Senior Fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, an analyst at the RAND Corporation, and Deputy Director of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, currently a Fellow in International Affairs at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He is the co-author, among other books, of The Age of Sacred Terror, winner of the Arthur C. Ross Award for Best Book on International Relations, and we will discuss his latest book just out, Grand Delusion, the Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East, which chronicles 40 years of delusional misunderstanding, appalling errors, and death and destruction by eight U.S. administrations towards a region about which they knew little and cared less. 
And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Karen Dolan, who's the project director of the Poverty and Race Project at the Institute for Policy Studies, whose work focuses on anti-poverty issues, local democracy and empowerment, and peace. She previously coordinated the Economic Hardship Reporting Project with the late New York Times bestselling author Barbara Ehrenreich, and is the author of The Poor Get Prison, The Alarming Spread of the Criminalization of Poverty. And she has an article at The Hill, President Biden, don't negotiate with fiscal terrorists. Welcome to Background Briefing, Karen Dolan. Ian, it's nice to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Karen. And so far, President Biden has resisted negotiating with fiscal terrorists, or as former Speaker Boehner referred to them as legislative terrorists, because he's basically been saying to Speaker McCarthy, you know, show us your, (laughs) show us the money. You know, show us your budget, and then we can talk. And, of course, McCarthy doesn't want that. But they did have a meeting today, the Republican caucus, behind closed doors, and apparently McCarthy is sort of begging them all to go along with whatever their plan is about using the debt ceiling, holding hostage, a lot of social spending on Medicaid and SNAP and other things. But, of course... The bill, whatever they come up with, and they now it seems like they'll come up with it next week sometime, if indeed he can get the House Freedom Caucus people to go along with it, which is a big if, it has no chance of passing a Democratic Senate. So where do you think this terrorism is going to lead us? Because it looks as though, I mean, even some of the more sensible Republicans like Nancy Mace are saying, you know, this is a once-in-a-lifetime leverage. Well, what kind of leverage is it to use a law that's a 1917 relic that makes no sense in the first place at leverage? In other words, destroying the United States economy for what? To enact a war on the poor? What kind of leverage are we talking about here? This is terrible policy on all levels, on any way you look at it. So from out of the gate, Kevin McCarthy dug himself a big hole in promising the most extreme elements of his Republican caucus that he would not pass a clean debt ceiling. Uh, He would not raise the debt ceiling without deep cuts uh, to programs that most of us rely on. Uh, He had to promise that in exchange for getting 
voted on the 15th vote to be Speaker of the House. So first of all, that's his first mistake. And then, as you say, it's a, a huge mistake and also completely unethical and immoral to condition um, the health and well-being of not only the United States, but the global economy, and more importantly, the well-being of hardworking families in this country on a political stunt to appease the most extreme elements of the Republican Party. And it will be a non-starter in the Senate. So on all different levels, including, as you as you mentioned, that the debt ceiling itself is just an arbitrary invention that has no real connection to the real economy. And it's simply uh, that that Congress has to pay the bills it's already accrued. This isn't about future budget negotiations to to raise the debt ceiling. Raising the debt ceiling just says we will keep the faith and good credit of the United States and not throw ourselves in the global economy into a recession and, you know, rob millions of jobs and millions of dollars in household wealth uh, for, um, a political stunt by the Republicans. So it's irresponsible on every level. And the notion that the Republicans keep saying that we need to, to rein in the debt, this has nothing to do with the debt. <laughs> in fact, it makes that, it harder for the government to pay its bills. And, and, well, that's and, right. Yes, so this has nothing to do with the debt. This has to do with we need to pay the bills for what Congress, including Republicans, already agreed to in the uh, in the spending bill at the end of 2022 for fiscal year 2023. We have to pay our debt. Uh, and even if you want to look um, separately at a budget negotiation, first of all, the Republicans can't come up with a budget proposal and likely won't because there is not enough agreement between the extremist elements and the more moderate, if you can use that word, which I would use with quotes around it, of the Republican Party. They they don't have enough agreement um, within their own uh, far-right party in the House to even come up with a budget. And if they were, if we're talking budget, what has ballooned the deficit in the last couple of decades? It's unpaid for wars, it's out of control Pentagon spending, and it's the exorbitant tax cuts that Trump instigated in 2017 that the Republican, the current Republican Congress wants to make permanent. That is where you're getting an explosion of the deficit that is completely irresponsible. Right. And yesterday, before the New York Stock Exchange, McCarthy said that they were going to use the debt ceiling as leverage to cut Medicaid and SNAP benefits. And he also vowed to protect the tax cuts and pass them into law and make them permanent, as you just said, and to, of course, arousing applause. So here you are beating up on the poorest Americans uh, to satisfy the richest Americans. It's absolutely obscene. It is obscene, and it also makes no fiscal sense. So it's... They are resting this on a false premise that has been propagated since Reagan and before Reagan, but really took off on steroids around Reagan's idea of the welfare queen, that people who receive assistance, which is very small uh, in monetary uh, 
uh, in money form these days is quite a is quite a modest amount that somehow the people who need assistance are not working when that's absolutely not true. Most of the people on SNAP, which is food stamps, most of these families have one and two workers in the families. Those who can work are working. And you already have, for instance, in SNAP and food stamps, people, working age adults, can only be on food stamps without uh, sufficient work hours for three months out of three years. And so they're trying to expand. That goes up to age 49. Once people make it into their 50s and 60s, it's harder for them to get employed, stay employed. You know, your body starts to to give you problems if you're, uh, you know, a -a work-a-day person. They want to extend that up to age 65. And even still... People are, who can work are already working. And so if you're making contingent, whether or not children can have food, whether or not people can have health care or housing, that they work 30 hours a week without giving them subsidies for child care, without sufficient wages to afford a one-bedroom, two-bedroom apartment anywhere in the United States on the minimum wage. This is a formula for disaster. This will make employment even harder. So there's no way in which which this makes sense. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, given that McCarthy and they had their meeting today with the Republican caucus behind closed doors, and it's pretty clear that that they're not going to have a deal, if they have a deal at all, until next week, and the Freedom Caucus is clearly rebelling and, for example, they want more cuts. They want to cut IRS enforcement for auditing, which is, you know, the only <laughs> which, in other words, they don't want the government to collect revenues at the same time <laughs> saying we've got to pay down the deficit. I mean, the whole thing is crazy. But just to touch on Biden, as you write in your piece at the Hill, President Biden don't negotiate with fiscal terrorists that then-Vice President Biden led the administration negotiation and paid the GOP ransom last time this happened with the Budget Control Act of 2011, which capped government spending regardless of needs for 10 years, and that led to painful, unnecessary austerity measures that dragged our economic recovery out another five-year-plus, and social spending still hasn't caught up to the 2010 levels and when adjusted for inflation and population growth. And, of course, when they made the deal saying that it was across the board that the Pentagon also would be capped, they found ways around the, uh, capping the Pentagon with this slush fund called the Overseas Contingency Operations Fund of nearly $900 billion. So we can't have a repeat of that, surely. That's right, and I think that Fortunately, Biden and the Democrats learned the lesson. The Republicans didn't because they are in the pockets of special interests and the wealthy, and they have taken revenue raising off of the table. There will be no revenue raising. So when you hear them talk about trying to be folksy and saying, well, people at home have to balance their budget and we have to be responsible. Nobody at home is responsible without bringing in revenues. And if they are, if they're not working, the few who aren't, the Republicans want to punish them. But for these Republicans, revenue raises are off the table. In fact, let's take 
taxpayers' hard-earned dollars and give it as tax breaks to the already wealthy who aren't paying enough. If the top 1% just paid their fair share instead of lying, cheating, and taking advantage of loopholes or extraordinarily low um, tax breaks, we could lift everyone in this country out of poverty just by having the top 1% pay their fair share. So if you take revenues off the table, the IRS funding is to go after tax cheats who make over $400,000. That is revenues that we need. Revenues from fair taxation is what we need. We wouldn't have a problem of poverty or economic hardship in this country if the wealthy paid their fair share. And what the Republicans are calling for is perverse to the largest extent by trying to impose on struggling, everyday working families rules that they are jumping over themselves. And it is unsustainable, and it won't get through the the Democratic Senate. But what it does do that people need to pay attention to is it sets a marker for what could happen if they do take if they keep the House, take control of the Senate, the executive branch. I'm not trying to be partisan. I'm talking about conservative ideology that is simply in the service of the wealthy rather than in the service of fairness and equality for all, which is what most Americans believe in. Well, Karen Dolan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian. It was my, it was my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Karen Dolan, who's the Project Director of the Poverty and Race Project at the Institute for Policy Studies, whose work focuses on anti-poverty issues, local democracy and empowerment. She recently coordinated the Economic Hardship Reporting Project with the late New York Times bestselling author Barbara Ehrenreich and is the author of The Poor Get Prison, The Alarming Spread of Criminalization of Poverty. And she has an article at The Hill, President Biden, Don't Negotiate with Fiscal Terrorists. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the role of a recent member of the United States Navy, Sarah Bills, who runs a pro-Putin social media site, Don Bastavushka, that was a source of disseminating to Russia and beyond some of the secrets leaked much earlier by a 21-year-old National Guard airman who was arrested on Friday. Put him out, put him out, put him out, put him out. And when they're gone, we'll sing and dance and shout. Bring some new ones in, and we'll start that show again. And if you don't like who's in there, vote them out. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Joseph Bodner, who is a research analyst at the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund, where he is part of their information manipulation team and focuses on Russian propaganda and disinformation. He previously worked with the Atlantic Council's Global Strategy Initiative and with the State Department's Global Engagement Center to identify trends in foreign disinformation targeting the 2020 U.S. election. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joseph Bodner. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And I understand you're doing research into the leaks by the 21-year-old Air National Guard tech in Massachusetts. But one of the key things in the reporting of that was that there was this 
report that some of the documents that he leaked to these, you know, he was the 21-year-old in, in this little group of teenagers, and he was their sort of okay. the wise man among them. And he'd been doing this stuff for months, but it only got picked up recently. And the right. theory is that the Russians altered some of them, particularly documents that that had the um, Russian casualties compared to the Ukrainian casualties, and the Russian casualties were transposed with the mm-hmm. Ukrainian casualties to make it look like the Ukrainians were suffering more casualties. Now, this appeared on April the 5th, and it was posted on this site called Donbass Devushka, Donbass Girl, mm-hmm. run by this Sarah Bills, and Bellingcat and others have said that she was the one who basically altered the docks, and that was picked up yeah. by Russian social media and got a huge amount of coverage in Russia. And then, of course, on April the 17th, on Fox News' Tucker Carlson's Tonight broadcast, he claimed that uh, Ukraine was suffering a 7-to-1 troop loss ratio and was losing the war mm-hmm. based on these documents. So what's the relationship that we know so far between the 21-year-old Air National Guard character, Tixiera, and Sarah yeah. Bills, the Donbass Devushka? Well, I don't know if they had any formal relationship. I don't know if they knew each other. Donbass Devushka ran social media accounts across a range of platforms, and she was really, she aggregates disinformation and pro-Russian talking points from across the internet and posts them to her feeds. Um, I wasn't surprised at all when I learned that she was one of the first pro-Russian accounts to post these documents, and even that she had manipulated some of those. But I do have to say that I've been watching Russian state media really closely around these leaks, and they've been really careful when reporting on um, the facts, really. They've stuck mostly to the facts, and Donbass Devushka was kind of alone in manipulating and amplifying those numbers. Like RT, they would report on them, but they would add the caveat that said, hey, there was two different versions of these documents floating around, right? So when Tucker Carlson picks up something that Donbass Devushka says, it's a huge boon um, for Russian disinformation because they didn't even have to do the work themselves. They let others handle it. And of course, she has, prior to these leaks, she had on her Donbass Devushka site, she'd interviewed people here on the American left, and she claims that she was booted out of the Navy because of her leftist views. But she, mm-hmm. one of her regulars on was Scott Ritter, and also the Russian mm-hmm. state media journalist uh, Fiorella Isabel. And she's right. been widely amplified in uh, mm-hmm. Russia by this Russian military blogger Rybar, Mm-hmm. On her site, you can donate money to the Russian war effort and to, of all people, the Wagner mercenaries who we just learned. Uh, yeah. Prigozhin ordered some of these mercenaries to murder a bunch of Ukrainian yeah. children. It's, it's absolutely horrifying that anyone would donate to that cause, uh, to that genocide, um, to those war crimes. But you're right. Uh, she did get picked up by Russian state media and even diplomats were retweeting her. That's how I first noticed her. She kept showing up in my feeds, and I follow overt Russian propaganda. So uh, the RTs, the Sputniks, um, UN diplomats, they were interacting with her, commenting on her posts, retweeting her. 
So I checked out her account a few months ago and noticed that she had a pretty big following in English. Um, and that, you know, that kind of caught my attention. I followed her to her Telegram account. Okay, another big following there. But what jumped out to me really was her podcast. And like you said, I looked at kind of who she was hosting on her show, and it were, were all names that were familiar to me. These were state media personalities, fringe American leftists who push Russian talking points. Uh, one of them even ran for office at one point during the midterms. Um, and people who joined the show who regularly wrote for sites that are linked to Russian intelligence. So once I saw kind of the who's who of Russian propagandists in the English language show up on her podcast, that it caught my attention. I knew that she was somebody that we needed to watch, and I wasn't shocked at all when she got caught up in the leaks. And at the moment, apparently, the, the FBI is um, investigating her along with the Naval Criminal Intelligence Service, the NCIS. So, mm -hmm. I mean, she says she didn't uh, ever leak anything when she was in the Navy. Yeah. But what I find extraordinary is, I mean, I know about, you know, the Scott Ritters and also Phil Giraldi and these groups from the veteran intelligence professionals for sanity. Um, right that write for Sputnik News along with the former CIA guy, mm -hmm. uh, John Kiriakou. So I don't understand why they're doing what they're doing and to the extent to which they're on the Russian payroll. But right. do we have any idea why she was doing what she was doing, apart from the fact that she's... The only suggestion we have is she got booted out of the... She says she got booted out of the Navy because of her leftist views. Well, I'm a leftist mm -hmm. and I certainly don't share those views. <laughs> Right. Um, no, I can't speak to her motivation. She's certainly aligned with uh, Russian narratives and talking points and worldview. Uh, she made that very clear, but I can't speak to, to why she did it. I think she made some amount of money off of hawking merchandise through her accounts, but she says it was a small amount. Right. Well, I just am puzzled by why any American leftist would support a right-wing fascist like Vladimir Putin, but that's another mm -hmm. discussion. So what's the latest then on Texiera, and what are you learning more about the leaks that hasn't been broadcast so far? Um, so the latest on him, he was arrested obviously last week. Um, he's facing charges under the Espionage Act, and he could face a considerable amount of prison time. I think it's uh, the potential of up to 10 years per count. He leaked a lot of documents. The Washington Post says around 300 documents came out. We're still uncovering those and, and learning about those. Um, so where kind of my expertise lies is following Russia's reaction to these things. Um, when it started, even our conversation started on um, what the Russia connection was here. A lot of people thought Russia was behind it. Turns out it was a National Guardsman um, and as everyone was wondering if Russia was in it, uh, involved, Russia didn't seem to know how to react. Um, they were claiming the leaks were real. They were fake. They were important. They were useless. It was a real mixed bag. And even now, um, after Texera was arrested, they don't seem to have a common response. So I think that in itself is pretty interesting. Well, it is at this point, though, it seems that nothing particularly damaging has come out of these leaks. I mean, when you talk about the yeah. 300 plus documents, pales in comparison to Snowden's, you know, 300,000 odd, along with uh, right. Chelsea Manning, who 
hundreds of thousands as well. So on that right. scale, it's pretty puny. So is this new twist now with Sarah Pills and the Donbass Dabushka girl? Is that mm-hmm. Do you think that's going to carry the story in a different direction? I don't think so. I don't think the focus of the story should be on Donbass Dabushka. She was just someone who inserted herself into a much larger narrative, a much larger problem. The focus should be on uh, what comes out of these leaks, how to mitigate the potential impact to the U.S. and Ukraine, and how to reform our uh, intelligence system so that these leaks don't happen as much in the future. So just in closing then, Joseph, I take it that the takeaway from the revelations about Sarah Bill's uh, The Don Bastavushka is mm-hmm. the extent to which Telegram, Twitter, YouTube, Spotify accounts more or less function as a disinformation aggregator and amplifier. And again, is there a problem here that there are no defenses against social media uh, in the sense that it's a part of um, Russian hybrid warfare? Yeah, I don't want to paint Russian disinformation and Russian propagandists as 10 feet tall here. I think um, Donbass Davushka had some success, uh, a bunch of success, if you um, factor in her getting her numbers onto Tucker Carlson Tonight, one of the biggest political shows in the United States. But I don't think Russian propagandists in general have done well uh, messaging around these leaks. They're pushing contradictory narratives. Um, they appear to be caught flat-footed, and they are really arguing against one another. And it, it doesn't seem clear to me that they even know what to make of these leaks at this time. They don't know if they're real or fake. Um, so I don't want to pretend as if um, they're 10 feet tall. Well, Joseph Bonner, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Joseph Bodner, who is a research analyst with the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund, where he's part of their information manipulation team and focuses on Russian propaganda and disinformation. He previously worked with the Atlantic Council's Global Strategy Initiative and with the State Department's Global Engagement Center to identify trends in foreign disinformation targeting the 2020 U.S. elections. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with the author of a book, which chronicles 40 years of delusional misunderstanding, appalling errors, and death and destruction in the Middle East by eight U.S. administrations towards a region about which they knew little and cared less. Listen, do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Simon, who served on the National Security Council staff as a Senior Director for Middle Eastern and North African Affairs from 2011 to 2012. He worked on the NSC staff from 1994 to 1999 on counterterrorism and Middle East security policy. These assignments followed a 15-year career at the United States Department of State, 
between government assignments. He was a senior fellow for Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, an analyst at the RAND Corporation, a deputy director of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and is currently a fellow in international affairs at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the co-author, among other books, of The Age of Sacred Terror, the winner of the Arthur C. Ross Award for Best Book in International Relations. And his latest book just out is Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Simon. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Stephen. And at this point, it looks pretty dismal. I don't know how much money we've spent recently in the Middle East, but... Some people have suggested we've sort of dug a big hole in the sand and dropped about $8 trillion. I'm not sure of those figures, but the long and the short it is that at this moment, it seems that the bad guys are winning, that there's a kind of de facto alliance between China, Russia, Iran, and Saudi Arabia. Three of those, of course, are among the world's biggest oil producers. And through while we were wasting all that money in the Middle East, while Wall Street and corporate America were investing heavily in China, and now we're having second thoughts about financing the rise of China, just as the Germans are having second thoughts about a peace through trade with Russia now that now that Russia has attacked and pounded Ukraine. So Am I being unnecessarily pessimistic? Because your book sure as hell doesn't make me feel good about our last 40 years of policy in the Middle East. Well, yes, it, it, the book takes a kind of dim view of the of, of those 40 years, uh, really, between the, the Reagan administration and, 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 uh, and the Biden administration. But uh, I think, you know, you have uh, some grounds for optimism. Uh, um, this is a bold prediction, but I, I, I really think that um, the the U.S. proclivity over the over these forty years to pay um, huge, I, I just a colossal price for meager returns uh, is uh, is waning, and and might well be and might well be over. I think by the by Obama's second term, the the fever really had broken. That also coincided uh, with um, the emergence of China as what the United States calls a strategic competitor. And so Obama's you know focus was already shifting from the Middle East uh, to uh, uh, to East Asia and the Western Pacific. So I think you know the bad old days you know are probably ending. And and I have to say on the Chinese and the, and the Iranians and the Saudis. Uh, in this respect, not everything the Chinese are doing is so terrible. Because if you look at American interests, one in the Middle East, uh, one of its key interests is the security of Saudi Arabia and the continued flow of oil and so forth. And the, and the key threat to that interest uh, recently has been the possibility of conflict between Iran and the United States and Saudi Arabia and, and so forth. Well, the deal that uh, that the Chinese uh, have hammered out between Iran and Saudi Arabia lowers the risk of conflict quite considerably. And the United States 
so far has been remarkably restrained in its response to this Chinese diplomatic coup in the region. And um, and I saw just, uh, just this morning a quote from a senior State Department official saying that this Chinese um, uh, diplomatic feat was actually quite important to the United States in a, in a positive way. So I want to leave you coming out of this interview feeling kind of good about things. Well, I don't think Israel feels good about the Chinese broken deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. It sort of makes the Abram Accord look somewhat irrelevant. And meanwhile, of course, Iran is now arming Russia in Ukraine. So is there any future with the Abram Accords? So, Ian, um, you know, my, my sense of the Abraham Accords uh, from the get-go was that uh, they were intended uh, to facilitate the movement of capital from the Gulf states to Israel from the United Arab Emirates uh, to Israel. And that, uh, and, and of course, Saudi Arabia is not a signatory to the Abraham Accords. Uh, the, the security cooperation between Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates has been going on for a long time and, and would have continued um, even without all the window dressing of the um, Abraham Accords. But really, what the Abraham Accords does is enable the UAE to use its sovereign wealth fund uh, to in invest in Israeli cutting edge industries. So I guess our perspectives on the deal are a little bit different because mine is, well, you know, it's just, it was all about business and, and yours is more that it had a, a security content. And I, maybe the truth lies somewhere in between, but uh, yeah. So anyway, the, uh, the Israelis are a little unhappy because they have egg on their face uh, with this Saudi-Iranian uh, uh, deal, because I think that they had hoped, and certainly the Prime Minister, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, had urged people to believe that the Abraham Accords uh, was a game changer, and that the Gulf states were now had now enlisted on Israel's side and a struggle against Iran, but that, of course, wasn't actually how the, the Gulf states saw it. Well, of course, Israel is now beset with massive divisions. It's often been said that if Israel and the Palestinians ever made a deal, which, of course, is somewhat unlikely, then uh, the secular and religious division in Israel would become more and more obvious and inflamed. And that seems to be what's happening now with these massive demonstrations against this government that is both nationalistic and with religious underpinnings. So in a way, don't we have a similar situation here in the United States with Donald Trump and his threat to American democracy, which has both nationalistic and uh, religious components? How do you see the future of Israel's politics given this divide? And there's no question that the United States is also divided. And Donald Trump is a, definitely a massive symbol of division or a progenitor of, uh, of division. Yeah. Well, first, uh, I have to agree with you on the parallels uh, between developments in Israel and, 
and developments uh, in the United States. And one of the interesting things here is that the religious right uh, in both countries understands the judiciary to be um, a key target in their uh, quest for more religious societies, uh, for societies where public policy uh, is infused or shaped uh, by religious values or religious law. In the, now, of course, the United States and Israel have different systems. One has a constitution, the other doesn't, uh, and all that. So their approaches to this judiciary problem differ somewhat. But in the United States, it's clear that the religious right has been working to get um, uh, justices nominated uh, and, and, and confirmed uh, for the Supreme Court, who will be... Uh, by and large, friendly uh, to um, the role of religion in in American life, particularly Christian religion, of course, um, not necessarily others. And in Israel, uh, they likewise understood the religious right there. Likewise, understood that you know it's been the Supreme Court that's posed an obstacle to the creation of a more uh, religious society, and so. You know, there, the approach is not to, well, part of the approach is to uh, rejigger the way in which justices are appointed to ensure that there are friendlier justices. But uh, more importantly, it's simply to pass a law that disempowers the Supreme Court uh, in Israel. And that law will likely pass, or um, I'd expect it to. Anyway, and the link here is this organization you probably heard of called the Kohelet Forum. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, perhaps it's not all that all that well known, but it, it was uh, this group in the United States that wrote the text of the law that the religious right in Israel has now, you know, put to a vote in in their in their Knesset, in their parliament for control of the Supreme Court. So not only does the religious right in each country have similar objectives and 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 similar strategies, but there's a uh, you know a sort of a cross fertilization uh, that's taking place. Now, how it plays out in Israel is, uh, in a sense, you know, your guess is is as good as mine. I mean, I just look at the numbers, and they strike me as being a bit discouraging, uh, seeing as how I'm of a secular liberal sort of persuasion, I guess, um, because the demonstrators, those who are actually willing to go out into the street and oppose the policies of the religious right constitute, I'd say, about a fifth of the electorate. And the other side, you know, has 64 seats out of 120 uh, in the Israeli parliament, which gives them, uh, you know, a pretty unassailable edge right now. So... You know, can I be optimistic? You know, the, the joke in Israel is that the protesters are all from Medinat Tel Aviv, which is the, the state of Tel Aviv as against the state right. of Israel. Right. And, it's, it's Tel Aviv versus Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, it's Tel Aviv versus the rest of the country. Right. Except maybe for Haifa, because Haifa is, is I think, 50% uh, Arab in, in population. So... Can we ignore Israel or the Middle East? I mean, you know, for example, I 
I was born in Australia, and the Australian Prime Minister doesn't have the kind of access to the American political establishment that the Israeli Prime Minister does, obviously. But And Israel's this tiny little country with an outsized influence. So is there any way for some rationality here, some proportionality? You know, I'd say no. Uh, you know, the, the domestic politics uh, is just too too complicated. And how can I put this? The uh, politicians running for office and the parties they represent could use, at least on the margin, the support of Friends of Israel in the United States, you know, for funding and, and other purposes. So it's really, you know, it's important. So the two parties, Republicans and Democrats, bid, you know, for Israeli approval and the approval of friends of, of, of Israel within the United States in pursuit of votes. Well, that in this bidding process, the Republicans typically outbid the Democrats because, you know, the Demo Democratic Party has a progressive wing. Uh, the progressive wing of the party, which is part of its core constituencies, you know, looks at what's going on in Israel. They don't like it too much, so they favor legislation that Friends of Israel perceive to be anti-Israeli and so forth. Whereas the Republicans, they don't have those constraints. You know, the, the, the evangelical community in the United States maps perfectly onto the Republican, you know, party. And the, and the evangelicals are very strong supporters, as are Orthodox Jews, but very strong supporters of, uh, of Israel and, and, and will approve whatever Israeli policies the Israeli government wants to put in motion at any at, at any time. So for the Republicans, it's easy to outbid the Democrats and show that they're actually more favorable to Israel than the Democrats. You can't trust the Democrats vis-a-vis -vis Israel. So the, the 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 Republicans maintain a lock on Orthodox than the Orthodox Jewish vote, which is important in some major urban centers, and evangelical uh, voters which are important in the very many red states in the United States. So, you know, when you have that kind of, uh, you know, complicated domestic politics and political contests are perceived to be existential, you're not going to see, say, the Biden administration publicly opposing Israel or what it's doing vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians or in terms of Israeli domestic politics because on the margin, the political price that the Biden administration will pay in an upcoming electoral contest is simply not worth it. Well, your, your new book, Stephen Simon, Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East, makes it really clear, as the title suggests, the delusion <laughs> It's delusional, fabricated in a continual superimposition of grand ideas by policymakers convinced of their own virtuous intentions towards a, re a region about which they knew little and cared less. And as you write, it is a tale of gross misunderstandings, appalling errors, and death and destruction on an epochal scale. Those are pretty strong words, and no matter how you, how you look at it. Seriously, Stephen. Well, that is that is my view, and I think it's supportable on the basis of the record. Mm. Uh, in you know whether whether the record consists of archival material that I've 
that I've explored, declassified intelligence assessments, interviews I've conducted, memoirs. I mean, none of this is, you know, is secret or even really especially subversive. I mean, from my perspective, it's just an honest reading of what's happening and what has happened and uh, and a frank assessment of what the costs have been, and they have been huge, and not just for the United States, but for the populations of the region, and the benefits, which have been virtually nil. I mean, over the, over the course of just going back to Iraq, for example, I mean, uh, since the first Gulf War, U.S. or U.S.-driven policies uh, towards Iraq have cost the lives of hundreds of thousands, you know, of Iraqis. Well, uh, in, in addition to thousands, you know, of Americans, um, you know, military and contractors. So, you know, this is all, uh, you know, a matter of record. It's, you could just, you know, look this up in an almanac. It's just a question of actually putting it together and telling the story and showing as I hope to do in the book, that this mayhem, you know, stemmed from, uh, as as you were just quoting, these grandiose ideas that were disconnected from observable realities. And moreover, and here is one respect in which I hope my book makes a, a bit of a contribution, is you can see within every administration, the intelligence community telling, you know, policymakers, your ideas don't fit the facts. Now, they had to express that in, in certain ways, in a certain coded language, but it's, if you've been in government, you can read it pretty clearly. So part of the definition of a, of a delusion is that, you know, it's, it's an idea you hold in the face of, of incontrovertible evidence of the contrary. So when you have the intelligence community, which is intended to be quite objective and to tell truth to power and so forth, and they tell you, you know something, you're barking up the wrong tree here, uh, and you don't listen, well, that's a problem. But just in closing, can you make the case that, as your book implies, that we here in the United States don't control our own political destiny, that obscure players in the Middle East, like Sirhan Sirhan kills Bobby Kennedy and leads to the rise of Nixon. Now we're learning, of course, about the October surprise, how Reagan's operatives, former governor of Texas, helped elect him and hurt Carter's re-election by making a deal with the Iranians to hold the hostages until after Reagan was elected. And then you have similar incident in, in, in during George W. Bush's tenure of obscure people like bin Laden coming out of nowhere and Saddam Hussein changing the destiny or the direction of U.S. politics. So it just goes on to the point where I'm asking that question. I mean, maybe it's on us that we should wake up and, and start controlling our own political destiny as opposed to being whipsawed by these obscure actors in the Middle East. Yeah, well, here, here. <laughs> uh, Ian, I, you know, I, I, I agree with you. And, and, and the U.S. response to 9-11 was really the, you know, the perfect illustration of the way in which the United States um, can react to a crisis going off half-cocked and getting enmeshed 
in horrible situations that that are very difficult to get out of. And they can be difficult to get out of because the way the U.S. political system works is that it's biased towards military action because it's 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 too easy in our system, especially as politicized as foreign policy has become. It's too easy for one side of the political system to attack the other for being naive or soft or as Nikki Haley, one of the people challenging Trump for the Republican nomination said the other day that that the the Democrat foreign policy was, quote unquote, woke and weak. Well, you know, in in the United States, that kind of language is salient. You know, it carries, uh, you know, it carries some weight. So nobody, uh, you know, wants to say, well, listen, um, maybe we shouldn't do this. You know, it's interesting. If you look at the debate, because it hasn't always been thus, if you look at the debate before George H.W. Bush's invasion of Kuwait and Iraq uh, in 1991, there was a there was a congressional debate. There was a debate in the Senate, and a steady stream of witnesses, you know, for hearings and so forth. And you read the debate, and I think the debate came out on the on the wrong side of things, but nevertheless, it was a really adult, responsible debate. And there was no name calling. Uh, there was no branding opponents of military action as being, you know, fools or tools of the enemy or what have you. It was a serious substantive debate. And then you look at the debate preceding the 2003 invasion of, of Iraq, and there's nothing of the kind, there's nothing of the kind. And so I think there's been a devolution. I mean, things have gotten worse in that respect. So if you're in a situation where, you know, let's say it takes you 20 years to leave Afghanistan because you're afraid that, but suppose there's a terrorist attack against the United States and I, the president, have just given the order to withdraw from Afghanistan, I'll be slaughtered politically. So therefore, just in case, we'll stay in Afghanistan. And then you wind up being there 20 years later. Um, it that's that's a big problem now, and it's and it's and it's a reason I think to be um, pessimistic, and it's got large implications for the way in which U.S. policy towards Russia and China play out. Be, this preoccupation with credibility and resolve and 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 being strong men. Well, Stephen Simon, you've given us a lot to think about in your book. Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East is, is a must-read, and I thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Simon, who served on the National Security Council staff as a Senior Director for Middle Eastern and North African Affairs from 2011 to 2012. He also worked on the NSC staff from 1994 to 1999 on counterterrorism and Middle East security policy. These assignments followed a 15-year career in the United States Department of State, and between government assignments, he was a Senior Fellow at four Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, Analyst at the RAND Corporation, and Deputy Director of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. He's currently a fellow in international affairs at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the co-author, among other books, of The Age of Sacred Terror, the winner of the Arthur C. Ross Award for Best Book in International Relations. And his latest book just out is Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East.
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in three